Welcome to the Modern Miss Mason podcast. I'm your host, Leah Bowden, and over here we learn from, celebrate, and lean into the teachings of educator Charlotte Mason, whilst focusing on how they impact a 21st century expression of childhood, motherhood, and education. Welcome back to the Modern Miss Mason podcast. I'm so glad you've tuned in and I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with Russ Ramsey in just a moment. So Russ and I talked for about an hour and I want you to have the whole hour of that conversation. So I am not going to speak for very long at the front end of this podcast. Yay, you all shout. She's not going to chatter on about all the things. I know you love it. But I also do want to say, guys, is it getting close to Modern Myth Mason, the book coming out? We're just under 12 weeks before the book lands on people's doorsteps in the United States of America. Uh, the audiobook also comes out then, and the um, of course the Kindle book and ebooks. And the 28th of January is when um, it'll hit your doorsteps in the UK. But it is soon, it is happening soon. And about at about the 10 week countdown mark, so I think that's around the 1st of November, you will start to see things coming up on my website. Uh, pre-order goodies that you can pop your receipt in there from pre-ordering the book and you'll get some downloads and you'll get introduced to a group and lots of things like that. Also something I'm very very excited about is that I am coming out on tour. So uh, the book and I and um, hopefully lots of cups of tea and uh, with with friends around each other we are going to be uh, moving across the UK at the first six seven months of 2023. I'm coming to a church hall, coffee shop, bookshop or even your living room uh, depending on who's who's booked me but I can't wait to do that so all those locations will be listed on the website and you will be able to find out about that soon and for all my friends in the states I know I'm trying my best but I am working on something to get out and see you guys probably late summer I shall keep you posted you heard it here first I haven't forgotten about you but it's you know a little bit more detail to fill in when flying across said pond. Um, so keep your eyes on the website. That is the place to look, leahbowden.com or modernmissmason.com. Keep looking on there. Um, in the meantime, pre-order the book wherever you buy your book from and just hang on to the receipt number and you'll be able to get some great goodies, which I will tell you more about probably next week on the podcast. I will tell you all about that. Okay, well, without further ado, I am actually going to jump into today's conversation. Now, today I am speaking to um, pastor and author Russ Ramsey, and I was so excited to get to speak to Russ because I discovered his book, Rembrandt is in the Wind. He has um, written other books I haven't uh, been able to read or I, I haven't even got them listed here I do apologize you'll be able to um, look those up um, from the link in the details of the podcast from his website but Rembrandt is in the wind is a an incredible book that struck me straight away because it is about um, learning to love art through the eyes of faith and what Russ does in this book he takes 
a whole bunch of artists and he brings out their stories and brings messages through their stories. The book has art prints in there. He even has a section right at the back, which I absolutely love and I do talk about in our conversation, um, on how to visit an art museum and how to look at a work of art. Um, it's so practical, so inspiring. I want you all to grab it and read it. Now, here's your warning is don't start reading this with your seven-year-old because he does not hide the truth about these artists. He does tell their real stories. So I just, just to recommend you pre-read the book. It is brilliant. I've loved it. I, I'm on my second reading through and I'm actually, I've taken a section of it on the part on Rembrandt and I'm reading that with my 14 year old and my 11 year old so um, it's brilliant so you're gonna love this conversation you might even want to take notes guys um you know get your cup of tea get that blanket curl up because it is autumnal and rainy here today and it feels like that's something we should do when we're listening to a podcast and um I want you to enjoy this. Go and follow him on Instagram. He does this cool thing called Art Wednesday, which he'll tell you about at the end of our conversation. Um, go look on his website. Have a look what else he has written. And just go and soak up all his um, knowledge and his passion for art. Because if you are a Charlotte Mason mama and you are spending time looking at art with your children, you could use this as mother culture, as your kind of, you know, um, staying intellectually alive, as you know, I talk about a lot. Keep learning yourself. And this is a perfect book to do this with and also a perfect book to use with your older children and teens. OK, that's enough. I said I wasn't going to talk very much. So without further ado, here is my conversation with pastor and author Russ Ramsey. Well, I'm so honoured to have Russ Ramsey on the Modern Miss Mason podcast with us today. Russ, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I am so excited to be able to talk with you. This is fun. Well, I've been looking forward to this for so long as a fellow art enthusiast and uh, just, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get into your to your work and your book um, because I've got, I've got a lot to ask you and a lot to say about it. It is fantastic. Um, Rembrandt is in the wind. Um, but for people who don't know who you are or anything about you, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction? Tell us about who you are, where you live in the world, and a bit about family, things like that. Sure, yes. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, in the United States, and uh, have lived here for, we've lived here twice, um, and I've lived here for about uh, 15 years almost. Um, and I'm a pastor here of a Presbyterian church. And um, been married uh, for close to 30 years. My wife and I have five children. And um, yeah, we, we have, uh, my, my life has been one of um, a combination of uh, pastoral ministry and writing uh, and, um, and kind of my hobbies are, are writing and, and hiking and uh, <laughs> learning about art. And so there's a convergence of a lot of things that have come together uh, with this book in particular of things that are all just kind of passions of mine. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where we're from. Nashville is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Um, and yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah so it was so good that you had to go back. Where did you live in between? 
<laughs> well, uh, we, we moved here right after we got married. Uh, and then I sensed the Lord's call to become a pastor. So we moved to St. Louis, uh, where I went to seminary. And then after St. Louis, we moved to Kansas City. Uh, which is in the Midwest. And, and uh, I pastored there for about seven and a half years. And then we moved back to Nashville um, in uh, after that. And so we, yeah, so we had a little bit of time. I'm from um, kind of farmland in America. That's kind of my, that's where I grew up. Uh, what we call the Midwest. And, and, yeah. um, and so being in, in um, Kansas and, and St. Louis uh, were both places that were pretty familiar to me, but Nashville, I've, I've, I'm also a musician and a songwriter and something, something I used to do a lot more of, and which, which is part of what brought us to Nashville the first time. And, um, and so there's, there's something that I love about this city because there's a great artistic community here. It's a, uh, it's a culture exporting town. A lot of, yes. a lot of music and a lot of uh, literature is created here um, and goes out into the world. And it's fun to be in the mix there. It's fun to pastor people who uh, that's part of their calling. And um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, so I'm, we're really glad to be back, even though I'm a, a from the Midwest um, by, you know, it's where I grew up. Uh, Nashville is, is such a good fit for us. Yeah, you know, I've, um, so between 2017 and 2019, I visited uh, Franklin and Nashville once a year to speak at a conference. Oh. So I- Are you kidding? Well, Frank, Franklin is technically where I live. Okay. Well, I yeah. love Franklin. So the conference was at the factory. And, yes. Um, so yeah, so three years in a row, I, and then the pandemic hit and things just changed a little bit. So, but I absolutely love- Franklin and I love Nashville and I came back the first second time I came back I said to my husband if if we were ever to live in America I want to live in Nashville <laughs> <laughs> so I do love it and I hear though uh since 2020 uh everyone's moving to Nashville it seems to be the oh, place oh yeah yeah it's yeah. it's it's growing quickly it sure is it's it's I think it's almost doubled in population since wow. we moved here wow um all those yes. years ago but uh yeah it's yeah and <laughs> it's then, the, then the the only other I've, I've traveled a lot sorry to all the listeners just ha just let's get past this <laughs> bit um i've traveled a lot in the states which my listeners do know about and but the one place where i lived for a year was st louis missouri so there you go oh yeah <laughs> yeah so uh familiar with all those other little bits so that's great five children fantastic and amazing like did you say 30 years married so you said uh, 30 yeah almost 30 fantastic um so thank you for that now i i guess something that came to my head just as you were introducing yourself do do the people in the congregation that you lead do they do they engage with your world of writing and art do the worlds collide do you find that you're bringing illustrations of art into mm -hmm. your sermons russ Yes. Well, <laughs> sort of. I'm, I'm, you know, I think about Jesus overturning the money changers tables in the temple. Yep. And uh, I, I'm, I'm reticent to talk about my books um, sure. beca because they're, you know, for sale. Sure. Um, but I do talk about art a lot and, and yeah. we just moved into a facility uh, that we were able to design. It's in an office park and uh, we, we, um, decorated it and had it built out ourselves. And one of the things that I did in that process was um, we bought about 20 
good quality reproductions of famous works of art and hung them uh, on the walls of the sanctuary and in the lobby, wow. uh, complete with the little little plaques next to them that like you would see at a museum. And I wrote the content on the on the um, plaques to kind of describe the paintings and uh, their provenance and, and all that. And so we, we really, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to decorate the church like an art museum wow. so that when people come in, uh, there's this collection of work that is there for them to kind of see and, and explore every week. And not, not all of them are biblical scenes, um, but they all have uh, significance to people of faith. And so, or at least in my, in my, you know, in my view, I, I like, these are ones I like to be able to point at and talk about. And, yeah. um, and so, I, so we do that. And, and I will tell stories uh, about artists and use, use art as, as illustrations um, and, uh, you know, kind of key ideas uh, in sermons, because I think it's, I think it's fun. I think art, art has a way of um, doing work on people that they don't really know what's happening. Um, yes. But it is like, so, for example, having all of these paintings on the wall. Uh, one of the things that I, I believe about art is that we as individuals sort of develop our own personal collections of art over time. And these are the paintings that we see and like, uh, or the things that we're intrigued by when we go to a gallery or, or you know, and so we sort of carry them around in our hearts as, mm -hmm. as, as kind of like, well, this is one of my paintings. And so in our sanctuary and in our lobby where we have all of these different reproductions, I know that, that for children and for uh, adults alike, that they are familiarizing themselves with Rembrandt and Caravaggio and Van Gogh and Monet and, um, you know, Mary Cassatt and, and Henry Tanner, you know, because they're seeing them every week and learning about them. And for me, pastorally, I feel like you know, I'm up to something <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, it, when it comes yeah. to hanging art in the sanctuary. I have an, my agenda is that I, I am, I'm wanting to put beauty in front of people as wow. often as I can. And uh, this is one of the ways that, that I've gone about that pastorally. So I talk about it. Yes. And people know that I've written books and I think that they appreciate that. I don't talk about the books a ton or, or have a book table out in the lobby or anything like that. Um, and, and my congregation certainly is very supportive of me as a writer. And I know that many of them have the book, um, have books I've written, but, but, um, but yeah, keeping art and beauty in front of people is something that is, that is, um, one of the things that I, I do, uh, as, as a way of, you know, kind of keeping keeping beauty and, and a sense of the glory and grandeur of God in front of folks. Amazing. Wow. I'm sure many, if we have any listeners who are in Nashville, they'll be like, where is this place? I want to go. <laughs> um, I love that. We, um, my husband and I were quite, we were pastoring for, for many years and we ran a small group in our home. And I remember one night my husband speaking and he, to the group and he used the paint a 15th century painting I think one of the one of the names it's known by is the hospitality of Abraham and where you've got these three angels gathered around it was in a time when kind of religious art was banned in Russia and the artist uh drew, painted this image to kind of sneak it in but it's really powerful and it's an invitation into the trinity it's mm. a really amazing picture and and the people who were gathered in our home that night some of them are you know never really had given time to art never thought about it mm -hmm. never really went to galleries but 
they all wanted a copy they all wanted to know where can we get this from and we you know we had it around in the home and just had various little pictures of it and it's amazing just a small introduction what it can do to someone's heart to open up that curiosity um, it's that I, idea, isn't it, yeah. of of that painting become becomes part of their collection now. They That's they right. they carry it around with them. Yeah, yeah. And I I tell the story. I write about it in my book. How my I was raised in a pretty you know working class home. Really, my both my parents weren't particularly highly educated, but my mother put art prints all over the house and didn't she didn't teach us from them she didn't tell didn't necessarily always tell us who they were by but I as an adult then visiting galleries would have these moments these flashbacks of whoa that's the one from our (laughs) bathroom you know that was Rembrandt (laughs) that was and, and just incredible we've we've my mother and I uh traveled to Paris together and did this whole trip around her and I remind remembering the art of our childhood which was probably calendars cut out you know printouts just mm-hmm. but it's so simple isn't it just bringing it in front of children yeah. and, and and adults who who can be introduced so tell us about your kind of art origin story did you study it was this something that you were raised on in your home yeah so um so i have uh i grew up in a small farming community uh, where, you know, the nearest art museum was, was, uh, hour and a half away probably. And, but what I did have is I had really wonderful art teachers, um, who didn't want us to just make pinch pots out of clay and, and, you know, um, buy a, buy a thing of watercolor paints and, you know, paint flowers. They, they really wanted us to, um, develop a lifelong appreciation of art. And so from the time I was in, um, seventh or eighth grade and even in, and then in high school um, my art teachers were telling me you know if you want a lifelong relationship with art find an artist that you like and then just pay attention to them for the rest of your life wow. and over time what will happen is you'll get to know them really really well and they will introduce you to their friends they'll introduce you to their mentors, their, their colleagues, you know, when you, so for me, Van Gogh would have been one of the first that I really, really liked. I mean, what, what kid doesn't like Van Gogh? Um, You know, (laughs) he's, he's easy access. And so, you know, so I, I would, you know, so, but when you go to see Van Gogh in a museum, uh, he's going to introduce you to Pizarro and Monet and Gauguin and, Mm -hmm. and uh, all of the impressionist painters who were painting around the time he was. And then you're going to learn that collectively they all uh, really were inspired by, you know, the Dutch Renaissance masters and, and, you know, and so you'll, you'll have this way of getting to know. And so for me, um, that's what I did. I, I just, I, and, and what's part of the reason I wrote the book is because I feel like a lot of folks feel an intimidation when it comes to the subject of art, almost as though you need to have some sort of art history degree or have right. taken art appreciation classes. And I've not done any of that. I, I was a psychology major in, in college and, and I'm a pastor now. I don't have any formal uh, art training uh, or education in, 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 from an institution. But what I do have is I've just, I'm, you know, I'm close to 50 years old now and I've I've been paying attention to these artists and reading about them and, mm-hmm. and uh, looking at their work and getting to know them. And it's a, 
uh, one of the joys of that pr process is uh, is that as a 50 year old, I get really excited about what I'm going to understand when I'm 70, you know, yeah, <laughs> um, give absolutely. me another 20 years to sit with some of these artists. And um, and uh, so I, I, I loved that practical approach that they gave us. Um, and in fact, I dedicated the book to those art teachers the, the, by yes. name um, <clears throat> as a way of of saying this this book wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the way that you taught art. And growing up in in um, in a farming community, you know, farmers are pretty practical people and pretty uh, pretty no nonsense. Um, but also they're people who do have a, a very deep appreciation for beautiful things. Right. You know, they till the land and they, and they produce crops and, and take care of animals. And, I mean, Wendell Berry, come on. Yeah, exa exactly. And <laughs> yeah. so, so in my mind, as I was writing this book, I had, I had some of the farmers that I grew up near in mind thinking really what I would want to do is give them this book and for them to read it and say, I really liked that. Uh, and, and that was a good, it was a good way of, of, of not, you know, it, it, there's not, it's not a highbrow book. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's stories, it's storytelling. And that's really what art is, right? It's, it's storytelling. And so I, I do have, I do go into some technique and technical stuff, but, but only to serve a story, uh, if, if I'm doing yeah. that in the book. And I so, mean it's when you say it's, I, I know what you mean by it's not highbrow. And I've tried reading so, so many, like I was saying to you earlier, I was tried reading various uh, biographical kind of accounts of, of artists, from, some really old stuff. And mm -hmm. I think, honestly, I mean, I've got um, one of the books I flick through regularly is um, Gombrich's The Story of Art, which is huge, you know, and you've got this loads of stuff in there. But I think what I think you're, this book does exactly what you're saying. It does. It doesn't dumb anything down. It doesn't simplify anything, but it puts art and the understanding of the artist into every person's hand. And I think that is a gift to us, really, that actually, just as you're doing in your community and as you are imagining these farmers, you do that, you know, for the audience we're speaking to today, majority home educating families. I would encourage them to pick this up for them to read this for themselves and even to use it as part of their, you know, the curriculum for their, for their family, because it's, it is written so beautifully and with great understanding and part of, um, part of the methodology that the Charlotte Mason philosophy teaches is that a book, sh you should be able to put a book down and then tell somebody else about it straight away. Mm, um, yeah. And that is the that is the sign of what she would she called a living book. So from the you know these ideas that are fresh and living from God into the heart and mind of somebody else, and you've mm -hmm. done that, Russ, definitely. So can I uh, can I tell you a yeah. funny story about about that? Do um, we had a vacation Bible school recently, and uh, one of the things that one of the roles that I played is <clears throat> I, there was a portion of time where I would take each group of little children. To, and show them a couple of the paintings in the sanctuary, you know, paintings that they see every week and, yeah. and talk about them, you know, and kind of tell the story. And so I, I would go to Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee uh, and I would take them there. And, and the routine that I had with them is I would say, how many disciples did Jesus have? And they'd say 12. And we'd count the disciples in the boat with Jesus and it's 13. 
And, and I would say, do you know why there's 13? And they would say, you know, and I'd point it at one of them and because one of them is Rembrandt and he painted himself into the boat yeah. uh, and he, he inserted himself as a 13th disciple. And he's the one who's looking out at the viewer, um, which is an artist's way of breaking that fourth wall and inviting right. the viewer to, it was Rembrandt's way of saying, I'm in the boat with Jesus too. And I'm asking him the same question everybody else is asking. And that's, don't you care that we're perishing here? Mm-hmm. And and I'm inviting you into the boat too. And so I'm, <clears throat> I'm taking children through this and, you know, there's that, that kind of a description. It gets a little um, abstract at a certain point, you know, where I'm asking them to sort of imagine themselves in the boat because that's what Rembrandt's trying to do. And when I had the, <clears throat> when I had the, uh, the youngest group, the four-year-olds, uh, they're just all over the place. They're, they're looking every which way and they're, I can barely tell if they're listening. I don't know if they're listening. And, um, and in the painting, one of the disciples is uh, vomiting over the side of the boat. And, and so I've got these four-year-olds and I'm like, how, how am I going to connect them to this painting? And so I kind of stop and I say, Hey, everybody, you see this guy right here. And I pointed at the guy who was um, vomiting over the side of the boat. And I said, what's he doing? And they're like, he's throwing up. And I'm like, yeah, isn't that weird? (laughs) And (laughs) what's funny about it is those, those four-year-olds were telling their parents about this painting of Jesus with his disciples in the boat. And they were mentioning that one of the disciples was getting sick over the edge of the boat. But I think about that. And I think that's a success because those kids now have a connection to that painting. Um, And I had to figure out how to, how to get that connection. Um, But when those children are in that room and they see that painting, it's one of theirs. They, they see it, they know something about it. And over time, they're going to begin to understand more and more of what was what that what that scene is really unfolding for us. Um, yeah. But it's funny how that how that works with with uh, how that worked with children on that day. I love that, and I love that you you know just the language of connection and ownership, and it belongs to me. I think that is is so important. To it's not just this um, passive thing where we go into an art gallery and you kind of and we'll come in a minute I'd love you to talk about how to do that how to go to an art Mm -hmm. gallery and how to know what to look at but it's you know viewing art as this passive thing with our you know stood back it 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 doesn't have to be that way that we can actually look for the one like your your Mm -hmm. art teacher said who are you drawn to what do you like about it it's okay to not like something why don't you like it and just asking those questions and even the details of what children pick up on I mean I have been just blown away by looking at art with my children or other children and the younger ones pick up the tiniest details that I've never seen Mm -hmm. um I was I'm trying to I think it was um I'm trying to remember the piece that I was looking at but I remember looking at this one um piece of, of art with um with a group of children and we were looking at the figure in the middle and um all the kind of background and the landscape and just out of nowhere one of the little girls four or five years old she noticed in the bottom left hand corner a dandelion um a dandelion clock actually so it wasn't even like yellow it was just it was fine and none of us else nobody else had noticed it and after they'd all left I looked up the significance of this dandelion and it was all to do with with the gospel and the 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 cross and all this and I was like wow this is incredible like a child 
we didn't get into that in that moment with her but actually after on mm-hmm. reflection she saw the thing that was most important and i love that i love how children can do yeah. that I, you know it's it's it speaks to how the lord made us you know that he made us to be people who resonate with things that are meaningful and we right. and we interpret and i i remember as a child one of the paintings in our sanctuary is caravaggio's the incredulity of saint thomas and if you've not seen that painting, just Google it and, and take a look at it. Uh, I remember seeing this painting as a kid and the feeling that I had. So it's, there are four men in the painting uh, and in the forefront is Jesus and Thomas. It's the resurrected Jesus. And he is guiding Thomas's finger into the wound in his side. Mm-hmm. And so, so Thomas's finger is, is in the wound uh, in Jesus' side. And I remember as a kid seeing that painting and feeling like I was getting away with something like, like, like maybe I'm not supposed to be seeing a painting that has this kind of, um, uh, that is this, um, grotesque, uh, and yet at the same time, I was drawn to it. And, and the story that that painting is telling is it's, is it's, it's telling us about the risen Christ. It's telling us about, um, Jesus response to our doubts. Uh, and it's a painting that's filled with hope. Um, but I remember as, even as a little kid kind of feeling like sobered by the access that I had to that image. And so it's in our sanctuary and we have a lot of children in our church. And part of the reason for that is I want our children to see this painting and to and to wonder about it and to wonder about what it is that they're, that they're seeing, knowing that, that every child who looks at this painting um, is, is doing something with it in their hearts. Um, Mm. And, and, uh, and it's serious business, you know, it's not, it's not a funny painting. It's, you know, um, and yet it's something that children are are kind of drawn to and and find mysterious and and want to understand. And um, that's, that's part of how our, art does its work, especially in the lives of children, I think, is, is they, they ruminate uh, and wonder and interrogate and notice things. And yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. So talk a little bit about why you feel it's, it's still important for us as, as adults and, and for our children to to study the masters, to look at art when we know we live in a world where we are bombarded with visual images from Mm -hmm. our, the palms of our hands and screens and people are creating art, Mm -hmm. you know, it's on the walls and when we're walking through cities, why, Mm -hmm. why is this still important? I think because part of being made in the image of God is that we are by definition creators. Uh, we're sub-creators. We don't make it out of nothing, but we do create as a as, and that's part of the way that we reflect His image. And one of the things that we know about the character and the nature of God, the image of God, is that He is glorious. Uh, in fact, too glorious to behold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so. For for human beings, part part of the work of being a human is living out this image bearing reality that that is ours. And so part of that means 
seeking glory and seeking being in the presence of of beauty and wanting to be involved in engaging with created <clears throat> created things and uh and when you're engaging with Caravaggio or Rembrandt or or some of these others sometimes you're engaging with art that has been around for 500 years you know and it's not just that it's been around for 500 years, but, but the collective opinion of humanity down through time about this particular work of art is that this is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that art is subjective. I, I know that it's, you know, that, that it, I, I believe it's a very valid form of art criticism to walk up to a painting or a sculpture and say, I like this one. That's enough. It's enough to say, I like it without having to analyze every little thing about it. Mm. That being said, Michelangelo's David, for example, yeah. is, is, a, is a near perfect sculpture out of marble, which is a very difficult medium to use in sculpture because you can only take away from it you can't add back if you make a mistake it's too late you know you can't fix it and that sculpture is is a almost perfect he's he's naked and so there's nothing to hide in his presentation of the human form like there's no he couldn't you know there's no robe around him to to uh to cover musculature or or those sorts of things and to behold art like this is to draw near to glory but glory that's being produced by the hands of of people like us mm-hmm. and uh and and there's something about that that reminds us of the uh the the, the sanctity and the complexity of being human beings uh, yeah. as image bearers of God, something that differentiates us from, from all the rest of creation. We're the only ones, we're the only created things uh, that use vacation time to go see pretty things. Um, you know, we're, we're the only ones who, who will travel to the other side of the world, uh, which I just did this, this past um, May and June. I was in London for a little while and, and uh, uh, you know, went, part of the reason I went with one of my daughters was to go to the National Gallery. Okay. And because I wanted to stand in front of some of these works of art that I've been looking at in, in print uh, for, for years and years and years. And we're the only creatures that do this. Uh, And it's because it's part of how we were made. And, and so when we, if we go through life and we're not really engaging with, with beauty and glory, and we're not really engaging with transcendence, I think we're, we're losing something. It's like, it's like missing a part of a healthy diet. Um, and, uh, and so putting ourselves in the presence of something that is, um, majestic or beautiful or something that, that collectively the world humanity has said, this is one of the greats, uh, is, is good for our heart. Uh, and it's good for our spiritual development and uh, in understanding the nature of God himself, I think. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, it's so much to think about there. <laughs> That's just, um, <laughs> absolutely. And, the I guess in some respects it's almost been seen as well yeah highbrow or going to galleries mm-hmm. and even though they're free here on I mean they're free in the UK um yeah. it's almost kind of still this dare I walk in it's this unreachable thing and I mm-hmm. I think I mean my my father who was in school I guess um in the in England in the 
late 1950s, early 1960s, he remembers school days, working class in Yorkshire, walking into the kind of school assembly and all along the walls, there were copies of works of art, of masters, just for the children to look at. And these kind of things were kind of put in the eye of just everyday children. And those things are not particularly part of our modern day education system here anyway. But I love that idea of just being able to reach every heart that is willing to, every eye that's mm -hmm. willing to look and a heart that's willing to respond and teaching people to, and children especially, to pay attention. And um, that you get to look as well. Everyone gets to look. And I love that mm -hmm. you, again, just love that you've put these prints in your sanctuary so that anyone can access them it's not you don't have to walk through the doors of an art gallery you can have them wherever um, yeah, yeah. It, it is powerful I mean you you know we've got masterpieces in popular culture you can get Mona Lisa on a t-shirt on a mug mm -hmm. um, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and many others but the idea of learning to look is is a powerful one isn't it and it I was looking again in your, there's one of your chapters on Lilius Trotter, which I was so glad you wrote about her. I'm a big fan of hers. Mm. You talk about, um, I'll read this. You say we about learning to see part of the artist's job is to see and then take what they see um, to say something true about the world. Part of learning, this is lower down in the page, part of learning to see involves the humility to have things shown to us. Um, yeah. I love that. Talk a bit more about that to us. Well, I think, you know, when, when we engage with art, um, a, a painter who is a good painter, when you look at a painting that they've made, they're not showing you a picture. They're mm -hmm. telling you a story. Right. And part of what they're doing is they're using the way we are physiologically made to do that. So for example, if you walked up to uh, Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son, a hundred out of a hundred people are going to have their eye go to the same place first. Mm. Um, and that is we're going to see the father and the prodigal in their embrace. Yeah. And it's because it's the lightest, it's the it's it's the brightest Maybe part of the painting, yeah. it's the centerpiece yeah. of it. Um, and you're going to, you know, and, and as human beings, what do we do when we, we make eye contact? And so we look, you know, we, we can't help it. We make eye contact with people and we look at what they're looking at, you know? So if I see somebody make eye contact with somebody and they're looking at something else, I look to see what they're looking at. And when you look at a painting, that's one of the things that we do is we look at the composition in a certain sequence. And it's not always exactly the same, but it usually it follows a very similar path. And so a painter will show you one thing, which will lead your eye to a second thing, which will lead your eye maybe to a third thing and a fourth. And before you know it, a story has just been told to you. A narrative, uh, and it's been done in a single frame. And so uh, it's one of the reasons I, I don't love still life paintings that much uh, is because yeah. it's hard for me to feel like I'm looking at anything more than just a bowl of fruit. Um, but for a lot of paintings, when you, when you look at them, part of the exercise of learning to see is, is kind of just taking a moment to say, 
what am I seeing first? And where is that directing my eye next? And what is the drama of the painting as it unfolds? And, and what is, uh, what's the title of the painting? Because that'll give me a lot of clues about um, the way that the story is being unfolded for me. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that's, 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 again, that's another part of being a human is that, is that we are, uh, we learn by way of story most. Um, I mean, most of right. scripture is narrative. It's, it's, it's not didactic, it's narrative. Most of Jesus teaching was in the form of parables and not, mm. uh, you know, declarative statements. And it's because I think Flannery O'Connor um, made the statement. She said, a story is a way of saying something that can't be said in any other way. And I, I love that because I, I think um, that's what, that's what good art does is it, is it tells us a story as we engage with it and it raises questions and it provides some answers and, and it gives the, uh, the author or the painter or the sculptor an opportunity to even make some comments along the way about what they, you know, what they want us to get from that. Mm, I love that. So, you know, a big part of, of your book is, is kind of snippets of bio, biographical information about each other. How important was that process to you or is it to you about knowing, you know, loving the art, but also getting to know the artist? Because I some of the stuff, um, I guess your chapter on Caravaggio was quite eye opening. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize um, yeah. what an interesting character <laughs> he was. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He, yeah. He, Tell he us a little a, bit about a that, because it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you kind of you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, I often find it, I'll just love, a, I'll fall in love with some poetry, a poet, and then I'll mm -hmm. kind of delve into their life. And there's this kind of, mm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with, with that yeah. crossfire of the arts and the artist. How did you find that? Well, one of my commitments when I was writing was, was I had a no hagiography rule. Uh, so a hagiography, for those who, that's a big word, uh, who don't know it, is it's a biography of a saint written to justify why the person was a saint. So a hagiography is just the good news, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to venerate any of these artists. In fact, all of them were probably insufferable uh, to live with in, in a lot of ways. And that's kind of the nature of artists, uh, an artist's temperament anyway. Um, but one of the reasons I, I wanted to bring the biographies, well, a couple of reasons. One is because it's, it's, it helps us to see, Caravaggio is a good example, it helps us to see that transcendent, theologically rich art was being produced by somebody who was just this complete paradox of corruption and grace. Um, and we're all that way, uh, that none of us uh, escape that. And so it's important for us to see that the really profound art doesn't come necessarily from the people who have everything kind of buttoned up and understand everything, but it comes from the strugglers. It comes from the people who are trying to get at something true and are trying to get at something beautiful and, and lovely. Um, the other reason I, I wanted to do a lot of biographical work in here is um, uh, it, it, it has to do with the way I relate to music as well as art. <clears throat> and maybe your, your listeners will relate to this as well that it's one thing for a song to come out and to really like the song. Um, but it's another thing for you to have a uh, kind of a relationship with a musician 
who has been releasing music over a period of time and you've you've kind of collected all of their work you know so for me paul simon would be in that category right um where i don't it, i don't like paul simon because there's a song of his that really makes me happy uh now it's i really see um paul simon as a body of work uh, so it's not just a song here or a song there, but really what I'm appreciating is the collection of what he's created and put out into the world. And even when a new record might come out, uh, it just becomes part of that bigger collection. I feel that way with Van Gogh as well, that it's Starry Night is fine, um, but really it's the body of work that Van Gogh gave us, the way that he gave it to us, the 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 overall mood and narrative arc of what you see when you look at his work over time uh, Rembrandt's the same way where there's this it's so much richer because you're you're getting one painting in the context of all the other paintings and in those in with all those other paintings you're getting them in the context of what you know about this artist's struggles and pains and sorrows and uh, the art is basically produced while their life, you know, the artist produced while their lives are unfolding and it reflects what it is that they're going through. And I think that's part of the the help that art gives us is it is it is it comes to us as a almost a cry of desperation uh, yeah. for for healing and for understanding yeah. and for peace. Um, and uh, so to not know <clears throat> the story behind the artist's lives, I think we we miss a great opportunity to engage more deeply with them, you know, so Van Gogh, for example, knowing that Van Gogh only sold one painting while he was alive, uh, just one, yeah, really kind of frames the experience of seeing a wall of Van Gogh paintings at a gallery, because you'll go into a gallery and there'll be seven Van Gogh paintings hanging on the wall, and you'll think, what a treasure trove of art I've just walked, walked into, those were stacked on top of each other in the corner of his studio or in his brother's apartment, um, unwanted and really unseen uh, until after he died. And that's a great narrative detail to understand when you're looking at these things, particularly uh, if we're people who maybe have <clears throat> some sort of aspiration or dream uh, creatively or whatever, something we may be wanting to make for the world. And, and, uh, and it feels often like an exercise in futility and frustration. Maybe we want to write some book or, or some poetry and, and, you know, or we have some dream of how we'd love to make our living, but have to work other jobs because, because uh, we've just not found the kind of success that could make us able to stand on our own two feet, just doing that thing. Uh, Van Gogh, Lilius Trotter is another example of that, of somebody who really yeah. had to lay aside one thing in right. order to pursue another thing. Yeah. And she felt the pain of it, even though she knew it was worth it. She still felt the loneliness and the, and the, the struggle of having to set aside her art um, to the degree that she had been pursuing it in mm -hmm. order to be this missionary to the women of Algeria. And you know, she, she mentioned one of her friends at the end of her life mentioned that she, she continued to paint and she used her painting as a way of evangelism for people right. to kind of break a language barrier. But she also um, would, would notice that she would feel the, the pain, like she was using a rusty tool uh, when she would paint because it wasn't her primary focus. And she felt the sorrow 
And her friend said that, that she felt the sorrow most acutely when she was painting. Mm-hmm. And there's, I'm like, who can't relate to that? <laughs> you wow. know, especially so as we powerful. get, yeah, as we get older. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I I do want to, I want to wrap up with some of your wisdom about kind of getting into art and looking at a gallery, but just, Mm. can you just talk us through the, talk us through the book briefly? I mean, we've got this, even the foreword with, from Makoto Fujimura is, I may have pronounced that wrong, but he's a big fan of his as well. It's fantastic. (laughs) How great to get him writing that, but just talk us through who you cover in the book. Have you got it in front of you there? Um, Yeah, I do. And then also I'd love to say, I mean, there are color pictures in the book and then Mm -hmm. there's the appendix has got some really practical stuff, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, But just talk us through um, briefly who you cover. Yeah, so so there's 10 chapters. The first chapter is kind of uh, sets the table for the rest of the book. I deal a little bit with Van Gogh there. Um, but then uh, we go through um, a series of nine artists. So Michelangelo is first, and then Caravaggio, mm-hmm. and then Rembrandt, and then Johannes Vermeer, uh, and then Jean-Frédéric Bazile, uh, really, and the Impressionists. That's what that's about. And then Van Gogh. Yeah, he was a new one to me, actually. I, I didn't know yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the chapter uh, the chapter kind of gets at why he would be one that folks would be like, why have I never heard of him? I, I right, answer that question right. in the in the in the book, and yet he was so so important. Um, so Van Gogh, then Henry Tanner, then Edward Hopper, uh, and then I end with Lilius Trotter. And one of the things that I did with with those chapters for pedagogical reasons, because I I hoped that people would use this book for teaching, um, is I did ar- arrange the chapters chronologically. Uh, so they do, they are in, in terms of, you know, when these artists lived and worked, that's, they're, they're in that order uh, in the book. And so each chapter is a standalone story. So you can read, you could read chapter seven and you wouldn't be lost if you hadn't read the first six chapters because it's about a different artist. That's and, right. yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, so that was the idea for, for that. And, and, um, uh, and then the appendices that I wrote, uh, we're really to try to give some, so a little bit of practical counsel for um, how to get started in a way that maybe wouldn't be intimidating, but would but would set people free to say, okay, I'm going to start a start a journey of engaging with art without the pressure of feeling like I have to know a bunch of history and vocabulary and understand technique in order to for my experience to feel valid. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so practical and so good. I mean, I. I um the last time I took my younger two kids down to London I was so specific I mean think I people often go with their kids to a gallery especially here in the UK because they're all free here and mm-hmm. you just people just go and then wonder why their kids are bored and they're crying <laughs> and they're dragging their feet and I always say to people look at before you go look at what's actually been exhibited pick one or two and tell the children, Hey, Mm -hmm. we're going to go and go and look at this one room, uh, you know, whatever it is and stay focused. So the last time we went to London, I think we went to see Raphael's cartoons um, in the Victoria and Albert museum. And they just decorated the room. It was all, it was quite newly opened after the, after the pandemic. And we'd been looking at them and studying them at home, you know, on, we'd printed them out and, 
they were huge and I said like we'll go to this one room that's the first place we'll go to and it was just incredible to focus in and just soak in this one room looking at every single painting and there happened to be a lady doing a talk that day that we didn't know about so it was just this wonderful experience without the stress of dragging you know children around every single room (laughs) and wondering what was there I think a little bit of um just a little bit of planning helps doesn't it when you go into a gallery Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when, when you go in, one of the appendices is, is how to visit an art museum. Um, yes. I, there's a phenomenon, I think, if you've been to museums before, I call it museum feet, uh, where your feet just feel really heavy at a certain point. Um, yes. <laughs> and it's just hard to walk around anymore. And you want to just sit down on one of those benches. And what I believe about that is I believe that that's part of um, part of part of the reality of being made in the image of God. And, and what I mean by that is I think that we can only take in so much glory at a time right. before we're, before we're overwhelmed and we start to shut down and we start to say enough, I, I don't have any capacity for any more. Mm-hmm. Um, the great thing about galleries is they're permanent. Uh, they're, they're, they're not going anywhere. And right. so you have the luxury when you visit one of saying uh, here's what I'm going to look at today. Uh, it's, I think it's a fool's errand to go into an art museum and say, I'm going to take in the entire art museum today. Right. You just can't, you can't do it. Um, but I think we'll also feel guilty a lot of times just walking past Vermeer or Rembrandt without stopping to pause, almost like we're disrespecting um, <laughs> the artists by breezing past them to go see something else. And to that, I would say, no, you're not. You, you, you if you want to have a great experience at an art museum, find two or three things that you really want to see. And on your way to see them, other things will catch your eye that you'll want to circle back to, um, you know, uh, and, and you can do that. But really take the time to just be in the presence of a few things. And then if you find yourself at another museum or even back at that same one, go, Go look at other things uh, the next time you go. But you you really, it's a way of walking into a museum um, with uh, kind of direction and a little bit of authority, you know. Of, yeah, of, I like that. I'm you, not, say, you talk about owning the place, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I walk I like in, that. I'm going I'm going to visit Van Gogh today. And um, and I might say hi to some of his friends around me. And, and, uh, and, and on my way there, wow, look, there's a, there's a Turner on the wall. I, I, I'm going to stop and read that, but on my way to see Van Gogh. And I think that's, that's a way, and, and that really is the best way to get familiar, I think, with other art in the museum is, yeah. is they really will introduce you um, and they really will give you um, a deeper understanding of the other artists that are there in the room. Um, and, and so that, that's something that, that I think is, uh, is you feel free to yeah. focus on two or three things uh, and call it good because that's all you can really do. It's true. So good. And, and also you say in the book how you, for a while, would you kind of, um, you would just go and look wherever you were, you'd look for a Van Gogh. I'm, I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. it the way we pronounce it. <laughs> um, yes. you, you would go and look for that. And, and then mm-hmm. he then introduced his work, introduced you to others. And that, that's such a great way of approaching it. Very simple, mm-hmm. very start small and build up from there. Yeah. You know, and we also, we have the internet now um, yes. <laughs> and there, there will usually be a, 
somebody will have written a post on top 10 things to see at this museum. Right. Um, and so if you do a little internet research uh, ahead of time, you, you might find some things like that that'll be really helpful to just give you a sense of, okay, here's what to expect when I, when I walk into this museum, some things that I could go and see. Um, mm -hmm. Something else that I wanted to mention um, is, is uh, something that I think is a great uh, life hack, if you will, for putting yourself in the presence of, of art, particularly if you wanna frame art in your home. And that is uh, used bookstores, uh, go to the coffee table section or the art section of a used bookstore and you will usually find, you'll find very reasonably priced um, large format books of the complete works of Turner or Caravaggio or, or whoever, uh, Picasso. And if you, if you have the stomach for it, buy one of the coffee table books with the intention of cutting it up, yes. um, of, of cutting out the, the, uh, the high quality reproductions that are in there. Um, Cause you can get eight by 10, um, oh, yeah. nine by, yeah. I mean, you can get some nice, nice paintings that you can put in decent frames with nice matting and hang them up in your home. I have a lot of that in my house uh, just of, of images that I've harvested from books that I, that I, you know, spent four dollars to buy. Right. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I've we I um the the Turner that you saw in the when we first came on camera, um that is part of a collection that I think was distributed in the nineteen sixties here in in the UK that you could mm -hmm. sign up for a subscription, and so in the actual book it's like a folder they have the prints that you can take out. And um, so, yeah, oh, wow. I, and I picked that up for a couple of pounds um, mm -hmm. this summer. I, I went on Turner, I went on Rembrandt. So I am definitely planning on framing some of those. Cause, um, yeah. Uh, great. That's great advice. Okay. Last up then, why do if people are saying how, okay, this is great. I feel inspired. You know, I want to engage with art. I want my children to engage with art. Um, how do you look at a piece of art like how does that work um should I you know should I study it should I ask you know should I know more about it how does yeah. someone do that from the beginning yeah I think you know I, I I take a very simple approach to this uh and the simple approach is gravitate toward what you like and be willing be willing to be okay with having preferences um, you know, it's, you, you, you may, there may be certain artists that have stood the test of time as, as, you know, uh, the, in the 25 most revered painters or sculptors in the world. And you may just say that, that doesn't really do anything for me. That's okay. Um, that's okay. I feel personally, uh, just to show my hand, I feel that way about Da Vinci. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I would be, I would consider myself nonplussed, uh, when it comes to Da Vinci. Now, I think part of the fault there lies with me uh, and not him. <laughs> and, and so one day he will, he will, uh, he'll win me over. Um, but I gravitate toward, toward what I like. Um, and then just, just look, you know, kind of like what we talked about earlier of, of what's the narrative thread that, that is unfolding when you look at a painting, pay attention to what you see first um, and just spend some time kind of taking in the composition and noting all of the the details that you that you can see, you know, uh, the number of people. Are there animals? Are there, you know, what's what's going on in the scene? 
And then, and I can't stress this one enough, after you've looked, not before, but after you've looked, read the plaque on the wall, um, read the details next to it, <clears throat> because those will give you, they won't just give you information about the, the painting in particular, but they'll give you information about art itself. You'll learn things about uh, the time in which something was made. You'll learn things about uh, how art is, is produced and crafted anyway that you don't already know. And so that's, that's something, read that. And then, you know, give yourself the freedom to take a photo of the painting. That's a fine thing to do to revisit later um, or details. And As the, you gift read the, shop, plaques, the gift shop often has postcards. I'm, I'm a yeah. collector of the postcards from the gift yeah. shop. So many of yeah, the, yeah. The gift shop will have all that stuff. So, you know, and then the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll recommend uh, in terms of how to look at a work of art is, is um, read the room. Like if you walk into a gallery, is there something that a group of people seem to be drawn to, or is there something that somebody else in the room is really kind of focused on and, and studying and just kind of lurk, you know, lurk, lurk behind them and, and um, try to understand what are they, what has them so fascinated right now by this particular painting? Because again, what we're doing is we're building a vocabulary over time, we're building a knowledge base over time, um, and we're, we're accumulating an understanding of art so that when we see something, um, you know, it, it, we're seeing it in, in a greater context that's, that's building for us the more we do. And the last, you know, the other thing I would say is, is give yourself the freedom to dislike stuff. Um, yeah. and, and know that that's okay, that, you know, art is subjective in a lot of ways. And, and I think even having a visceral experience of dislike to something is a great form of art engagement. Uh, is it because yeah. it gives you the opportunity to say, why don't I like this one? Um, what is it about this? Because if it is somehow passed the test to be hanging on the wall of the National Gallery in London and you don't like it, uh, then <laughs> there's a great, a great opportunity for you to say, what's, what, why don't I like this thing that obviously uh, is, is esteemed as worthy of being in the National Gallery in London? So um, you know, uh, have the moment, have the experience of engaging with the art in the moment, but also know that when you're doing that, you're building a, uh, a depth of knowledge and understanding that will follow you when you leave the museum and be with you when you return to it the next time. And so, uh, you know, be kind to yourself. <laughs> That's so good. Russ, this has been so inspiring and so practically helpful as well. I know many people uh, will have found this conversation incredibly helpful for their, their own art journey. Guys, buy the book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith by Russ Ramsey. Where can people um, connect with you? Where's the best place to come and find you? Oh, and tell everybody about Art Wednesday. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so you follow me on social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm on all three of those. Uh, and really one of the things that I do every Wednesday is, is something that I call art Wednesday, where over the course of the day, I'll post a series of about, you know, seven to 10 works of art that are connected in some way. They're maybe all by the same artist, or they have some sort of uh, exercise uh, to, to do as you're looking at them, um, or, you know, some sort of theme, uh, like during Christmas, I'll post nativity scenes, uh, you know, or, or um, 
so, but, but I do that over the course of the day. And then at Fathom Magazine, um, uh, at, at five o'clock in the afternoon, it, well, it's five o'clock for me, <laughs> uh, that, that collection of, of Art Wednesday posts, those paintings and descriptions uh, are posted in a, in a column form. And so you can read that. So if, if you go to Fathom Magazine now, you can, uh, you can find all of my Art Wednesdays that I've posted since June um, there in column form. And I do that as a way of, of trying to just introduce beauty uh, into the social media stream. There's a lot in the social media world that's not pretty. And, uh, and so I wanted to create something that would just help people get familiar with art. It's very simple. Um, if you're an educator, it's, it's always good for kids uh, because yes. it's a great way to just introduce a lot of very minimal biographical introductions to artists um, or, or certain themes. And so, um, so it's there, it's free. It's just something I do as, as part of the way that I, I keep myself learning. Uh, so a lot of these Art Wednesday series have been created because I, have, I don't know anything about this painter or this, this sculptor or this idea. And so it's a way that I learn. Um, and so that's, yeah, the way to, that how, that's the think, best way to find me. So I'm, uh, I'm going to say yesterday, but people won't be listening to this obviously live. But yesterday, I think you had a hopper piece and you used the same picture not yesterday Wednesday you had the same yeah. picture but you just kind of showed us different parts of it and talked through Norman it. Rockwell yeah that, oh sorry I'm wrong yeah, <laughs> yeah. no that yeah, was not, that was Norman Rockwell yep. Rockwell that's right and um that was really good because you kind of broke it up and then talked about the different elements of the painting I liked that yeah so good yeah Love it. Great. Well, Russ, thank you. This has been so helpful. Um, I'm sure our listeners will rush to, to buy the book and come and find you over on Instagram. <laughs> thank you for, awesome. for joining us. My pleasure. This has been a great conversation.